Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margo, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hi, everyone. I have a few announcements to make. First, I am going to be in Vegas at the end of the month for CrimeCon where Military Murder is a featured podcast on the prestigious podcast row. Yay! So if you're in Vegas or close by and can make it, check out CrimeCon.com for tickets so that you can stop by my booth to say hello. But if you can't make it to CrimeCon, perhaps you can make it to True Crime Podcast Festival in late August in Dallas, Texas. Again, I will be crushing it at my booth there. So if you're close by, go check it out. Finally, just a little reminder that I do have a Patreon fan club where you can listen to more content. There are at least 20-ish full-length episodes at the basic level. And on the flip side, you might hear about a murder at the Leavenworth Prison, a double murder at Robbins Air Force Base, a murderous Master Chief Petty Officer in Japan, and that's just to name a few. You can check that all out today at patreon.com slash military murder. Oh, and guess what? You also get every single episode from episode one until now completely ad free and you get all the bonus content immediately so that you can start binging right away. All right, that's enough of the announcements on with the show. This week's case is not about a military murder, but it is about a tragic death and the military's attempt to silence the men who knew the truth. 18 years ago on April 22, 2004, Patrick Tillman's family got the horrible news that their beloved husband and son had been killed in action. While I vaguely knew the story back then, I never really knew the story. So I am bringing it here to you. This is the story about how the Tillman family unearthed what really happened to Pat while serving in Afghanistan. Some considered what happened to Pat Tillman to have occurred in the fog of war. But what the Tillman family discovered was more sinister than that. And what happened next was a full-blown cover-up. Join me today as I tell you the story of Pat Tillman. Now, let's dig in. This story was researched and written in part by Myrtle. The sources for this story include two books, one book by John Krakow. I think that's how you say his name, but I'm not sure. And it's, his book is titled Where Men Win Glory. The second book is by Mary Danny Tillman, Pat's mother. And that book is titled Boots on the Ground by Dusk, My Tribute to Pat Tillman. We also watched a documentary titled The Tillman Story. On this documentary, you will hear from Pat's wife, Pat's mom, dad, and youngest brother. We also hear from a few soldiers who served alongside Pat. We also rely on articles from the Washington Post and The Hill, and finally, the pattillmanfoundation.org website. 
Our story begins in a remote canyon in the coast province in eastern Afghanistan. Late in the afternoon on April 22, 2004, a platoon of army rangers known as the Black Sheep were engaged in a fight for their lives. The platoon was a part of the elite 75th Ranger Regiment, 2nd Ranger Battalion, Alpha Company, 2nd Platoon, out of Fort Lewis, Washington. Almost immediately before this firefight, the platoon had been split into two elements that they called serials. Serial 1 had gone west towards a village called Mana. Serial 2 had gone to the east to drop off a broke-down Humvee that was being towed. Serial 2 was only supposed to make a quick pit stop, drop off the broken vehicle, turn around, and meet up with Serial 1 in Mana. A local national was towing the broken-down Humvee with a Jenga truck. Jingas are flatbed trucks that are about the size of a mid-sized moving truck, like, I don't know, like a U-Haul. They're decked out with bells and painted in bright colors. The troops called these trucks Jenga trucks because, you know, the bells jingled when they were on the move. At a fork in the road where Serial 1 had turned west towards Mana, the Jenga truck in Serial 2 brought his truck to a screeching halt. He turned to the interpreter and was like, oh, hell no, we are not going that way. The Jenga driver told the interpreter that he didn't think their intended route was safe. He opined that it would be safer to go west with Serial 1 and that they would still be able to get the vehicle to the drop-off location. The driver's biggest concern was driving over the top of the mountain, which was extremely dangerous and probably for various reasons. Serial 2's leader, Sergeant Gadek, agreed and turned the convoy around, instructing everyone to follow the route that Serial 1 had just gone a few minutes earlier. Serial 2 busted a Yui and the Jenga truck led the convoy. By this point, Serial 2 was a mere 15 minutes behind Serial 1, but by this point, the sun was setting, giving off weird shadows and putting the soldiers on edge. The canyon they were traveling through was a tight fit with steep walls that went straight up on both sides, leaving a slim margin of error. The rangers had to crank their necks out the windows to try to see the top of the canyon where Taliban might be setting up for an attack. When all of a sudden, as they were driving, there was a loud explosion, kaboom. Almost immediately, the soldiers started yelling, IED, IED. IEDs are improvised explosive devices that are remotely detonated bombs that were often planted along routes that American convoys were traveling. Instinctively, training kicked in and the rangers got to work. They were now in survival mode. They dismounted their vehicles and within a few seconds, there was another explosion. Kaboom! Crap! They realized that it wasn't an IED after all. They were getting hit with mortars. Mortars are explosive devices that are launched from a distance and are referred to as indirect fire because they aren't a precise weapon. Mortars make a blast zone that kills and maims anyone within its blast radius. Kaboom! A third mortar now exploded near where the second one had landed, causing rocks to crash down around the vehicles. Almost simultaneously, the soldiers started receiving small arms fire. Sergeant Cadet got on the radio yelling, Go! 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 It's not IEDs! It's mortars! The rangers got back into their vehicles but couldn't get out of the kill zone because the freaking Jenga driver was just sitting there. He wasn't a soldier, just a local national, and he was cowering under an overhang at the base of a cliff. Right away, one of the rangers sighted what he thought might be a forward observer, 
and he engaged the target. That prompted other rangers to fire on that area as well. The Tourette gunner considered shooting his Mark 19 grenade launcher at the target, but he was worried about the grenades hitting the rock walls and bouncing back down on their own heads. One of the squad leaders, Staff Sergeant Greg Baker, ran to the Jenga driver and yelled at him to move the truck. He forced the driver back behind the wheel and jumped into the passenger seat next to him. As the convoy started creeping ahead again, the Humvees behind the Jenga concentrated their firepower on the ridge above them with a 50 caliber machine gun, a 240 Bravo machine gun, and two or three M4s, and finally an M203 grenade launcher. They drove as fast as possible, but that was only about five miles an hour because the terrain was so rough. They continued to be fired on by enemy fighters. Sergeant Baker used the buttstock of his M4 to break out the side window of the Jenga and returned fire. As they lumbered along through the narrow canyon, one of the vehicles lost its mounted gun, a 240, when it hit the canyon wall. The soldiers quickly retrieved it, but the buttstock had been sheared off when it hit the wall. Another mortar exploded on the wall above them, scarring the Jenga driver. So he stopped the truck again. The entire convoy came to a screeching halt because the canyon was too narrow for them to maneuver around the Jenga. The rangers dismounted their vehicles again and they could see four enemy personnel on a ridgeline wearing what they called, quote, gray man dresses, end quote. They fired their M4s and set up a mortar tube and fired a 60 millimeter mortar up towards where they had seen the enemy fighters. Sergeant Baker had to really work to convince the driver to get going again. And when he finally did, the convoy lurched forward again, all the while the rangers were lighting up the top of the canyon, even though the mortars and small arms fire had stopped. They exited the canyon about three quarters of a mile past where they had been fired upon and the Jenga inexplicably stopped again. And again, all the vehicles rolled to a stop in a valley on the west end of the canyon. When Serial 2 had come under attack, Serial 1 had just exited the canyon on the west end. As soon as they heard the explosions and gunfire, a dozen rangers or so scrambled out of their vehicles to get to higher ground in the hope that they could provide cover for their teammates in Serial 2. The squad reached a small group of huts, and as they moved through the settlement, they noticed a conspicuous lack of adult males. It was evening and dinner time. Normally, at least one adult was in the household, and this led them to believe that the Pashtun villagers were supporting the Taliban and that the missing men were probably the ones who were attacking the convoy that Serial 2 was on. Two rangers and an AMF soldier from Serial 1 continued up and made it up and over the top of the ridge, then took cover behind two low boulders. They were spotted by enemy fighters and began receiving direct fire. It was then that the team leader turned and sprinted 60 yards back up the hill under fire to alert the squad leader, Sergeant Weeks, that he intended to return fire. Sergeant Weeks approved the plan, so the team leader ran back down through enemy fire to the boulders where he had left the other ranger an AMF soldier and fired his M249 squad automatic weapon, or SAW. The squad leader was shooting the enemy on the opposite ridge, and he was doing this so that the other two men with him would know where they should shoot as well. Behind them, the entire team was under fire now. 
mortars and bullets sprayed around them. As described in the book where men win glory, one of the rangers recalled that he heard a strange buzzing and kind of like a crackling noise, and he thought it sounded like static electricity. But in actuality, it was the sound of rounds whizzing right past his head. None of them could tell exactly where the rounds were coming from. Suddenly, a grenade exploded about 30 feet away from the position where Sergeant Weeks was with the rest of the rangers. One of the soldiers thought he saw movement on a ridge about 800 meters away from their position, and he opened fire with a burst from his 240 Bravo machine gun. Once he began firing, the rest of the rangers followed suit, firing chaotically into the hills. Sergeant Weeks yelled at them to cease fire because most of them were armed with M4 rifles anyway, and they didn't have the range to hit a target 800 meters away. They continued to receive fire, but couldn't be sure where it was coming from. The two rangers and AMF soldier who were further down the hill from Weeks and the rest of the rangers saw the Jenga in Serial 2 exit from the canyon. The team leader noticed a muzzle flash across the valley about 400 yards away and fired his saw to let the AMF soldier and fellow ranger know where he wanted them to fire, and they began to engage the target. They shot at the insurgents across the canyon, attempting to provide cover fire for the remainder of the platoon in Serial 2 below them. Just then, as the AMF soldier stood and fired, he was shot eight times in the chest and fell where he stood, dead. It was then that the two rangers with him quickly realized that the rounds weren't coming from across the canyon at all. They were coming from below them. They were being shot at by their own platoon from Serial 2. The two men frantically waved their arms and yelled out, Cease fire! Cease fire! Friendlies! But they had to dive behind the rocks after being sprayed with hundreds of rounds of machine gun fire. The rangers in the first Humvee coming out of the canyon on Serial 2 jumped out of the vehicles and started shooting at the ridgeline, where the two rangers were located by the rocks. The two men from Serial 1 waved their arms to let the rangers in Serial 2 know that they were friendlies, and they continued to yell, cease fire, cease fire. As the bullets hit the boulders, it blasted shards of rock like shrapnel at them. The rocks were only a few feet off the ground, so they didn't provide very good cover. The Serial 1 team leader then popped smoke, meaning he pulled the tab on a smoke grenade, throwing the canister with purple smoke towards Serial 2 to indicate that they were Americans. He was just hoping that the troops firing at them would recognize them and stop shooting. There was, in fact, a lull in the shooting. So the two men came out from behind the rocks. But then, suddenly, the shooting started up again. The team leader was shot in the leg, dropping him to a squatting position. And as he fell, he started yelling again, quote, what are you shooting at? I'm Pat Tillman. I'm Pat fucking Tillman, end quote. The shooting continued and he kept hollering it over and over and over again until his voice faded and finally stopped. Then the other soldier who was with Pat Tillman, a young private named Brian O'Neill, heard what he thought was running water. When he looked over, he saw that specialist Pat Tillman had been shot in the forehead. The result of three high-velocity bullets tightly grouped together on Pat's forehead was absolutely devastating. His head was blown open, leaving fragments of skin 
and bone just sprayed around the boulder. And his brain? Well, there's no good way to put this. His brain was on the ground. O'Neill saw this and screamed in horror. He was terrified and frozen in place. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. To understand what happened on April 22nd, we have to rewind a few days. On April 7th, 2004, the Black Sheep flew on an Air Force C-17 from Fort Lewis in Washington to Afghanistan. The platoon included two Rangers that stood out from the rest of the men. They were both a little older than the other enlisted men, and physically they were both a lot bigger. Patrick and Kevin Tillman, originally from California. Pat Tillman, the name may actually sound familiar to you. Pat gained fame playing for the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL and was well known for his relatively small stature at just 5 foot 11 inches as compared to most other NFL players. And he was also known for his tenacious hitting style. But people infamously remember Pat Tillman for walking away from a $3.6 million NFL contract after September 11th to serve the country by joining the army. His younger brother, Kevin, was a talented athlete in his own right. He had been playing minor league baseball before and had a good shot at playing in the majors before he joined the army with his brother, Pat. Pat didn't make his decision in a vacuum, however, and he and Kevin together decided they wanted to be army rangers. The rangers are special operations warriors and are ranked in their eliteness just under Delta Force and the Navy SEALs. Or listen, maybe they're equal. I don't know. Please don't come at me. I'm going to blame that on my scriptwriter, and you are all equally badass in my book. Okay, so nobody get offended. 
Pat joined the army with the full support of his wife, Marie, who was his high school sweetheart. Pat and Kevin were both college graduates and could have easily become commissioned officers, but they decided they wanted to serve in the enlisted corps with the Rangers because they wanted to be fighting on the front lines, not pushing papers behind some desk. And listen, they definitely didn't join the military for the money because back in 2003, an E-1 was making something like $1,150 a month. The Tillman brothers were no kidding answering the call of patriotism after 9-11, wanting to follow in their family members' footsteps by serving their country in wartime. Their grandfather, Hank Tillman, and uncles had been stationed in Pearl Harbor when it was bombed, and thankfully, all three survived. Their maternal grandfather had also fought in the Korean War. While the brothers were going through the recruitment process, Pat and Kevin did everything in their power to keep Pat's face out of the news regarding his enlistment. But despite their best efforts, someone recognized Pat at the recruiting office and leaked it to the press. Honestly, Pat Tillman was quite possibly the most famous recruit since Elvis. What? Yeah, I didn't know Elvis was prior military, but apparently he joined the army during World War II and it grabbed the nation's attention. And when famous people enlist, guess who else notices? Politicians, that's who. This time, it was the White House who took notice. The Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, sent a memo to the Secretary of the Army and a note directly to Pat. Pat also received a letter from the commander of the 82nd Airborne trying to convince him to forgo the Rangers to come and be a member of that unit. This type of fanfare would have made anyone feel special, but not Pat. It actually made him uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, he was used to being in the spotlight, but Pat didn't want to be used as a recruitment tool. He wanted to serve his country fearlessly, but quietly. It was about America. It wasn't about him. Let's fast forward to 2004 in Afghanistan. By the time the Tillman brothers boarded that C-17 to Afghanistan, they were no longer rookies, but seasoned veterans. They had an Iraq deployment under their belt and not just a quiet tour in Iraq either. While they were there, they were part of a mission that sent a massive force of Marines, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta Force operators, SEALs, and Air Force pararescue to rescue a prisoner of war that had been taken captive during an attack on a convoy. I'll give you a guess who that POW was. Going once, going twice, Private Jessica Lynch. But more on that later. After Pat returned from that Iraq deployment, he was somewhat disillusioned with the war and how things were unfolding. But he made a commitment and he was going to follow through. Now it was 2004 and the brothers and the rest of the team landed at Bagram Field in Afghanistan 36 hours after they left Washington State. And while they were there, they waited on orders. But they wouldn't have to wait long because on April 14th, they flew by helicopter 120 miles south to Forward Operating Base, also known as a FOB, Salerno in the coast province. They only stayed at the FOB long enough to mount their big guns on the Humvees and Toyota Helix pickups and pack their provisions, which were cases of rations called meals ready to eat, or as they're known in the military, MREs. And of course, they packed water. 
The same day they arrived, they rolled out from Salerno on their first mission outside the wire since arriving in Afghanistan. And by the way, outside the wire, that just means outside the military base in Afghanistan. The Black Sheep Platoon had been tasked with finding and eliminating areas of Taliban support in the remote villages along the Zero Line as part of a new offensive called Operation Mountain Storm. The Zero Line is what the army called the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The villages were occupied by two different Pashtun tribes. Both tribes were known for their support of Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters and their fierce defiance against anyone they perceived to be an invader. Around 15 of the rangers in the Black Sheep Platoon had never seen combat before, and some who were on their very first deployments, well, they were excited that they might actually have a chance to earn the combat infantry badge. According to Myrtle's research, it was, or maybe it still is, an embarrassment for a ranger to go into a combat zone and not engage in battle. At any rate, the rangers all felt the same. They hadn't gone through incredibly hard training, earning their coveted tambourine so that they could avoid the fight. They joined because they wanted to belong to an elite fighting force that had a long history of participating in wars, going back to the Revolutionary War. They wanted to prove their merit under fire. They were hungry to fight. The black sheep drove in their Humvees and Toyota pickup trucks along the rough riverbeds and narrow goat tracks that served as roads. The first night they set up their camp about three miles from the Pakistani border, and in the morning they started searching villages on foot patrol. The first day was, for lack of a better word, uneventful. But by the second night, they met up with a CIA operative known only as Steve, and this operative told him that he had good intel that Taliban and Al-Qaeda were planning an attack on the border crossing point that the guys had been camped nearby. The rangers were pretty stoked that they might get to see some action. The border crossing point was manned by Afghan militia forces, or AMF as they were known. They were allies and they were recruited and trained by the CIA. The rangers were going to help by supplementing their numbers and providing defense against an attack. After sitting up all night, though, in their body armor, including helmets with chin straps secured tight under their chins and with rounds loaded in the chambers of their weapons, no Taliban came through. The rangers were disappointed that they missed out on a chance at combat that night, but they stayed close to the post and frequently came and went from the border crossing over the course of the following week. The post was situated in the mountains at about 8,300 feet above sea level. During their patrols, they would drive down into the valleys and routinely hike on foot to elevations over 9,000 feet to get a bird's eye view of the villages over the border in Pakistan. One of the villages was on a main route used by the Taliban, so they set up a squad as an overwatch to keep an eye on the activity in the village. One night, it was cold and the rain was relentless when they noticed a couple of dudes with AK-47s coming up the ridge but they shot off a flare and the insurgents turned and hightailed their booties back down the hill. During the following week, the rangers continued their patrols. The rain was sporadic, add the cold weather, and it was quite miserable conditions to say the least. Despite finding some rockets and loads of marijuana, the black sheep never encountered anything very threatening. They never got the sense that an ambush was imminent, most of the villages were no more than groups of huts filled with friendly people 
who offered them tea and sugar candy. The Rangers had been in Afghanistan for about three weeks by this point, but hadn't encountered any Taliban fighters. The newer soldiers were feeling really frustrated, you know, because they might deploy back home without that combat infantry badge after all. Due to the large area and number of villages they were responsible for clearing, the constant rattling up and down the rutted rough roads around the province was taking its toll on the vehicles. On April 20th, one of the Humvees broke down and it wouldn't start despite the mechanic dedicating an entire day to try to get it running again. The following day, the mechanic worked hard trying to get it going, but he didn't have any luck. The rangers ran out of MREs and they were hungry. So much so that some of them even took to rummaging in the trash for anything edible. Okay, anyone listening, is this true? Can someone please let me know? Because this just makes me so sad. It, it really hurts my soul. Pat Tillman apparently was one of the rangers who rummaged and dug through the trash pile until one day he triumphantly held up a brownie that had been tossed. Everyone had a good laugh over that. And the guys were so hungry that they even bought a goat from a villager. They butchered it and cooked it, although it reportedly wasn't very kind to the soldiers' digestive systems. Meanwhile, the ranger's mechanic continued to work on the Humvee and was pretty sure it was a busted fuel pump. He requested a new one from Fop Salerno, which was flown out to them by a helicopter, along with more MREs. Thank goodness. Meanwhile, the rangers were trying to entertain themselves. The AMF soldiers suggested some friendly athletic games. Two competitions that they agreed upon were wrestling and rock throwing. For rock throwing, they chose a chunk of limestone to be the official throwing rock. And the games were on. The Rangers weren't idiots, though. They had a freaking NFL football player on their team. So someone went and found Pat to come participate in the games. And when he showed up, well, let's just say... He had a presence. The AMF soldiers were astounded at how big Pat was. They hadn't seen many guys his size. And when Pat picked up the rock and heaved it, he tossed it a good 10 or 15 feet farther than the best shot thrown by the biggest guy the Afghans had. (laughs) And everyone roared. The AMF soldiers loved Pat and he got along great with them. Everyone had a good day, and it was times like these that helped to pass the time waiting on the truck to be fixed. It also distracted everyone from half-empty stomachs. But the platoon mechanic had some pretty bad news. The new fuel pump didn't fix the Humvee, so they decided if they couldn't get it to work, they would just have to tow it. The next morning on April 22nd, they hooked up the broken Humvee to a working Humvee, and they were on their way. They actually used a tow strap, by the way. It was daylight, and traveling during daylight hours went against Ranger policy. They normally moved in the dark to avoid the danger from IEDs, but headquarters insisted that they stick to a strict schedule, so they rolled out with the broke-down Humvee in tow. The route was going to take them along a river that went through a canyon and would descend over 1,500 feet in just three miles. It had rained and had been raining for days, if you remember me saying, so the conditions were muddy and slick, not to mention the jagged rocks that they had to go over and the tight spaces between boulders that they had to squeeze the convoys through. 
The towed Humvee took a beating and eventually snapped a tie rod, causing the front tires to flop out in opposite directions. It wasn't going anywhere. They had towed it just over five miles and it only took them four hours. Oy. They were in a village called Magra. It was one that they hadn't patrolled and cleared yet. The platoon commander, Lieutenant David Utlau, called back to headquarters on their satellite phone and requested either a heavy wrecker to tow the broken Humvee back to Fob Salerno or for them to send the Chinook helicopter to hook it up and sling load it out. Sling loading means that the Humvee would be moving by hanging it by a harness and dangling underneath a helicopter. Back at Fob Salerno, the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Bailey, he wasn't in at the time. Outlet spoke to the Alpha Company XO, Captain Kirby Dennis. Now bear with me as I explain the game of telephone that went down. As I was reading this, my eyes crossed and my brain turned into mush. But if you were ever a part of the military, this is just a typical Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You get the picture. And I digress. Captain Dennis, the executive officer, relayed the information to the Alpha Company commander, Captain William Saunders. Captain Saunders was then going to relay the information to Major Hodney. When Major Hodney sent information back to the field and Lieutenant Utla, it went in reverse order back through the company commander to the XO and then to the lieutenant in an email. Word finally got back to Lieutenant Utla that they could send a wrecker but it could only make it to the edge of the pavement, which was 15 miles away from the village they were stopped in. The roads were just not going to cut it. And he said, what about the helo option I talked about? Well, the email went on to state that sending a helicopter to sling load the broken Hummer was out of the question. Long story short, they needed a 96-hour advance notice because of manning and equipment, and it just wasn't an option. One of the soldiers was like, hey, listen, let's blow this sucker up and call it a day. Reason being, you destroy the Humvee so it can't be repaired and used by the enemy. But even this seemingly simple solution required higher up approval. In fact, this solution required permission from someone back in the United States. Can you imagine how long that would take to get approval? But then another order came down. Headquarters told Lieutenant Utlau to split the platoon into two elements. Half of the platoon would go with the FUBAR. FUBAR, by the way, is an old military term that dates back to World War II, and it means effed up beyond all recognition. So anyway, so half of the platoon would go with the FUBAR vehicle to a paved road where the wrecker could get it, and half of the platoon would press on to the next village, Mana. Of course, their intent was to continue searching for Taliban. Now, the message as he received it was clear. Lieutenant Utla had wasted enough of their time. Utla was to get boots on the ground by dark. To say the least, Utla was frustrated. He didn't want to split his troops into two groups this close to Pakistan because he knew the radios were going to be sketchy once they were in the canyon. That whole saying of an army of one, well, that's bullshit. You can't win anything with an army of one. It takes a team. And Utla recognized that, but it's the military and orders are orders. Utla then did a quick inventory of their firepower and realized they only had one 50 cal machine gun. 
which meant that only one of the convoys would have a big gun. By this point, the platoon had been sitting in Magra for six hours, trying to get away ahead from headquarters. So now it was sure that any insurgents in the area were probably well aware of their presence. Lieutenant Utla was only 24 years old, but he wasn't some punk wet behind the ears kid. He graduated at the top of his class at West Point and was first captain of the Corps of Cadets, which is the highest position in the cadet chain of command at West Point. Now, anyone who's listening to this is like, okay, but who cares? But anyway, the whole point is that it's not like he's brand new, right? At President George W. Bush's inauguration in 2001, David Utla was the one who led the Army's procession in the parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. He was a real squared away soldier, the best at everything. He was a disciplined soldier and he didn't question orders unless there was a darn good reason to do so. Well, this was one of those times where there was a darn good reason to question an order to separate his platoon. Utla sent a series of emails back to headquarters questioning the decision to split the platoon. He detailed the expected communication issues in the canyon and he respectfully told his chain of command that it was just not safe for half of a platoon to convoy to Mana. Sadly, though, his pleas fell on deaf ears when the response came from headquarters, reconsideration denied. Oof. There was about an hour left before sundown when Lieutenant Utla finished splitting the platoon. He negotiated with the Jenga driver through an interpreter to hire him to tow the Humvee to the paved road to meet the wrecker. Lieutenant Utla was on serial one. That serial included 20 Army Rangers and seven AMF soldiers. There were two Humvees and four Helix pickup trucks. Pat Tillman was on this serial, serial one, and they were heading to Mana, and there were six vehicles total in this convoy. Serial two was made up of 25 Army Rangers, two interpreters, and the driver who was a local national. They had the Jenga truck towing the jacked up Humvee, and they had five additional vehicles. Kevin Tillman was on this serial and he was in the very last Humvee riding in the gun turret. The gun turret, as it was explained to me, is a sling that the soldiers sit in and their head and shoulders sit above the roof through a hole in the Humvee where they take aim at things and shoot, you know? Okay, by this point, everyone is loaded into their Humvees and they were all set to take off. But Lieutenant Utla made one last ditch effort to keep his team together he sent another email to headquarters. Again, he requested to keep his team together, stating lack of communication in the canyon, reduced number of rangers in each group, and their reduced ability to respond to any threats. There was additionally the 250 cal guns were with Serial 2, leaving Serial 1 exposed because the broken Humvee had a 50 cal gun attached to it. Captain Dennis replied to Utla that he needed to execute the plan. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes 
that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. The two elements left at the same time and started their drive down a riverbed. They stayed within a few hundred yards of each other until they split off at a fork in the road. At the fork, Serial 1 with the lieutenant and Pat turned left towards Mana, and Serial 2 with the broken Humvee was supposed to turn right and head for the rendezvous point with the heavy wrecker. Kevin, who was the caboose in Serial 2, could see the final vehicle from Serial 1's small convoy disappear as it went west into the canyon. From here, we know that the Jenga driver refused to turn east at the fork in the road because he felt they would be better off following Serial 1 and would still get to their intended rendezvous point with less danger. At this point, the ranger in charge of Serial 2, Sergeant Gridek, had made the decision to turn the convoy around and follow Serial 1 towards Mana. Serial 2 is now behind Serial 1, or at least following close by. And it was when Serial 2 was making their way through the canyon when they were attacked. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of this episode, they thought that they were hit by IEDs, but it ended up being mortars. When Rangers in Serial 1 heard the explosions and gunfire coming from the canyon, they dismounted their vehicles and took to higher ground to provide cover. Serial 1 had no idea that Serial 2 had turned around and was following them because remember, the radios didn't work in the canyon. Specialist Pat Tillman from Serial 1 had charged up the side of the mountain with the rest of Serial 1, but had made it to the top and over the other side with Private O'Neill and the AMF soldier Saeed Farhad before the rest of the element. Now, they found some cover behind the boulders, but the boulders didn't provide much safety for Pat, O'Neill, or Saeed. Saeed was the only AMF soldier that had charged up the mountain with the Americans. Pat spotted flashes from enemy fire on the far side of the canyon, and that's when he ran back up the hill and briefed Sergeant Weeks as to his plan to provide cover fire. When Weeks approved the plan, Pat ran back down to the boulders and sprayed a volley of bullets from his saw to indicate to O'Neill and Farhad where he wanted them to shoot. About that time, Serial 2 had made it through the canyon, and as the Jenga came to a halt just outside the mouth of the canyon, the second vehicle, a Humvee with six Rangers in it, came to a halt right behind it. They had been engaged in combat with the enemy. Their weapons were charged, and they were amped up and on edge. Sergeant Baker had been riding in the Jenga, but got out and into the Humvee with the other Rangers. Many of the rangers just experienced their first firefight. Baker noticed an AK-47 muzzle flash to his right side. As he looked closer, he could see it was a dark-skinned man with a beard firing. He raised his M4 and fired six rounds 
toward the perceived threat. Two of the rounds found their mark and the bearded man fell to the ground. In the confusion, Baker had not seen that the fighter was Saeed Farhad, wearing an Afghani version of the American BDUs, which BDUs stands for Battle Dress Uniform. Clearly, Saeed was not wearing the traditional shawar kameez, which is a long tunic worn over baggy pants, typically worn by Pashtun men in that region. Unbeknownst to Sergeant Baker from Serial 2, Saeed wasn't shooting at Serial 2. He was providing cover fire to protect them from the threat on the other side of the canyon. The remaining rangers in the first Humvee from Serial 2 started shooting at the same location that Baker shot at. It was as the Humvee turned the corner of the opening of the canyon that the Humvee driver, Sergeant Colette Sayer, noticed the vehicles from Serial 1 parked ahead of them. In the chaos, Kellett hollered, Friendly's on top! But no one heard him. Above, Pat Tillman and O'Neill desperately waved their arms and yelled to the soldiers shooting at them that they were friendlies and to cease fire. The book Where Men Win Glory describes the complete chaos. In the fading light, Private O'Neill couldn't make out any faces in the Humvee shooting at them, but he knew it was his friends. In desperation, he threw his weapon down onto the ground, hoping that they would see and stop shooting. He curled up into a ball and desperately began to pray out loud. Just then, Pat Tillman asked O'Neill why he was praying and what it was going to do for him. O'Neill ends up living and he is able to further explain what transpired at this point on that mountain. And you can actually watch O'Neill talk in the documentary, The Tillman Story. At this point, Pat told O'Neill to quit praying because God wasn't going to be the one to help him now. This was reality and he needed to focus on the situation at hand. Praying meant he wasn't paying attention and not paying attention could get them killed. O'Neill actually credits Pat with saving his life by refocusing him in that moment. The shooting chaos continued for close to a minute. When you count 60 Mississippis, that might seem like a blink of an eye. But when you have hundreds of live rounds coming directly at you, it must seem like an eternity. The Rangers in Serial 2 continued to spray the mountainside with bullets from their M4s, M240 Bravos, and the 50 Cal. They're all automatic weapons, by the way. An M249 saw can lay down 1,000 rounds in one minute alone. Six Rangers trained to hit their targets were behind those weapons. It wasn't a really good place to be on the receiving end of that. Sergeant Colette Sayer, the driver of the Humvee who tried to warn the Rangers in Serial 2 that Serial 1 was on the mountain, well, he continued to drive. At the same time, he reached back with one hand and grabbed the pant leg of gunner Stephen Ashpole, desperately trying to get his attention to stop him from firing the 50 cal on Serial 1. But Ashpole, experiencing the fog of war in that moment, was so focused he didn't notice Sayer yanking on his leg and kept firing. Farther up the mountain from O'Neill and Tillman, the rest of Serial 1 was totally exposed with no cover. They helplessly watched the rangers in the Humvee spray bullets all over the side of the hill and into the village, rounds hitting all around them. One of the soldiers on the receiving end, Russell Bear, 
was nearly hit by a 40 millimeter grenade. He himself was carrying a saw and recalled that he was extremely close to returning fire just to get them to stop. But miraculously, he maintained his restraint and did not shoot back. Lieutenant Utla and his radio man, Jade Lane, had stayed back with the vehicles to call headquarters and let them know that the attack in the canyon had taken place. After they had sent the comms, they moved up into the village and took a position next to a two-story building where they could engage the enemy. They began to shoot across the canyon at the insurgents when they were suddenly knocked to the ground by an explosion. Lane looked up at the lieutenant and could see that the lieutenant had been hit in the face. Utla hadn't even noticed it yet, but when he touched his face, his glove was immediately soaked in blood. He had been hit in the face by shrapnel from a grenade. A few seconds later, Lane was struck by a bullet in the knee, and as he tried to drag himself to cover, he was hit in the chest. Thankfully, his body armor took the impact and the bullet ricocheted off and grazed his shoulder. The two men assumed that they had been hit by a mortar and AK-47 fire, but what they didn't know was that it was coming from members of their own platoon in Serial 2. As rounds continued to pour in on Serial 1's positions, Lane, the radio operator, got on the radio and screamed for fire support. There was an Air Force enlisted terminal attack controller on the other end of the radio who would be the one to get them air support if they needed it. The Serial 1 Rangers on the mountainside could hear the drone of an engine in the sky, and they wondered if it was the close air support that they had requested. As it grew closer, though, the sound became clear that it wasn't an A-10 at all. The sound they could hear sounded kind of like a lawnmower, but it was the sound of a Predator drone. Predator drones are prop-driven aircraft that are remotely controlled by a pilot and a sensor operator sitting somewhere in Nevada. Predators are typically equipped with a high-resolution camera and were used for intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance, but at times carried a pair of Hellfire missiles on board for close air support. This Predator, however, was only armed with a camera and it continued to patrol the skies overhead. By the time that Serial 2's lead Humvee reached Serial 1's tail Humvee, the shooting ceased. It had been 14 minutes from the start of the attack in the canyon until the last shot was fired. The soldiers from both elements were pretty deafened by the noise of the 50 cal firing. As the ringing in their ears stopped, Soldiers from Serial 2 could hear the sounds of people yelling, and they were yelling, cease fire, cease fire. In the book, Where Men Win Glory, the author describes this scene in shocking detail. Above them on the mountain, one of the soldiers could finally hear, and it was someone screaming, quote, oh my fucking God, oh my fucking God, oh my fucking God end quote, over and over and over again. Sergeant Weeks, who had been in charge of Serial 1 and one of his team leaders, Sergeant Mel Ward, ordered the fire teams to stay put and they ran down towards the sound of the screaming. That's where they found Private Brian O'Neill was in a state of hysteria. He was covered in Pat Tillman's blood, splinters of bone and brain matter. He had taken his helmet off and his gun was still on the ground where he had thrown it. 
Weeks yelled at O'Neill to get his helmet back on, get his weapon and square himself away. He then told him to go pull security in a nearby sector to occupy his mind. Weeks then called over the radio and gave a report. Quote, I've got one eagle, K-I-A, call sign Tango, end quote. Eagle meant that it was an American and K-I-A meant that he was killed in action. And Tango is a phonetic first letter of the K-I-A's last name, meaning it started with T for Tillman. As Weeks and Ward surveyed the scene, Ward dropped to his knees, hugging Pat, and he began to cry. Ward and Pat had become really close on the deployment and had spent time together pulling security details, talking about their families and what their plans were after they got out of the army. It affected Ward deeply to see Pat like this, dead, dead, dead on the side of this shitty ass mountain. In John's book, Ward talked about when someone dies in battle. He said, it's not like in the movies. Tillman wasn't lying there looking like he was sleeping. It was horrific and gory, absolutely gruesome. By now, Sergeant Godek had climbed the hill from Serial 2 and sent one of the soldiers down to the vehicles to get ponchos and a litter to transport Pat's body. By this time, the remaining vehicles from Serial 2 had emerged from the canyon and could see the activity on the mountain next to them. And let me just remind everyone at this point that Pat's brother, Kevin, he was in the very last Humvee, sitting right above everyone else in the turret. As the Humvee emerged from the canyon, Kevin could see the platoon carrying something large off the mountain, and he asked what happened. He's like, hello, hello, what's going on? Someone told him it was an AMF soldier, but Kevin knew that something else was wrong. Regardless of where he was, Kevin could always hear his brother. Pat was described as having a very booming voice, but also he was a big ass dude. So in actuality, if you couldn't hear him, you could at least see him. And Kevin couldn't see or hear his brother at all. And you have to remember, Kevin and Pat are not just friends, born merely 14 months apart from each other. From childhood, they have been listening for each other's voices. And sometimes the silence is louder than noise, especially when it comes to close family. Kevin again asked the Humvee driver, Sergeant Parsons, dude, what the flip is going on? Parsons pretended he was distracted by moving the Humvee over to the other side of the vehicles. But Kevin was relentless and he asked Parsons a third time. Parsons knew there was no more hiding what happened. He got up in the Tourette and told Kevin bluntly that Pat was dead. Kevin was silent for a few minutes. Then he got down and started pacing around the vehicle yelling, fuck, fuck, fuck. The platoon's medic came over and took Kevin's M4 from him. Eventually, two Black Hawk helicopters landed. Pat Tillman and Saeed Fahar's body were loaded onto one of them. The two wounded rangers, Lieutenant Utla and Private Lane, the radio man who had been shot in the knee and shoulder, they were loaded into the other Black Hawk helicopter. About an hour later, a helicopter came back and picked Kevin up to take him to Fop Salerno. Once the deceased were whisked away, the black sheep had to continue on their mission, 
which was to clear the nearby village of Mana. As a platoon cleared the village, they heard helicopters overhead, and they looked up and they could see two Chinooks. Each one had a Humvee sling loaded underneath them. The black sheep silently watched them fly by and lamented if Lieutenant Utla had just won that argument with headquarters hours earlier, Pat and Saeed would still be alive and the lieutenant and the operator would be unharmed. While this may seem like the end for anyone listening to this story, this is so far from the end. This is really just the beginning of an absolute nightmare for the Tillman family. There's the initial notification, your husband Pat, your son Pat, your brother Pat, died at the hands of enemy fire while he fought valiantly. Then there were the suspicions that something just wasn't right. Politicians were using Pat's image to propel their political agenda. The men who all knew the truth of what happened in Afghanistan were sworn to secrecy. But finally, a pissed off father sent a fuming letter that made the army shit their pants. All of this next time on Military Murder. If you're anything like me and can't wait for part two, join the fan club today where part two is waiting for you right now. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash military murder. The fan club brings some other perks as well, at least 20 or so bonus episodes, as I already said. And of course, there's swag, stickers, challenge coins. Yes, challenge coins. Be sure to follow me on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end. I usually post about one or two big stories on there a week. So make sure you're following me there and also follow me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. Shout out to all of my Patreon fan club members. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, and this episode was produced in collaboration with all of my boot camp and higher fan club members. This month's executive producers are Nicole, Falcon 13, Alicia, Jen, Tina, Ryan, and Bob. Shout out to the show's newest assistant producers, Destiny, Amanda, and Kapana. Shout out to the rest of my newest fan club members, Maria, FG, Tina, and Jennifer. The music was created by TyApps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.